Welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. This is Alia. This is Nadia, and we have two guests with us today, both really awesome dance artists. Um, do you want to introduce yourselves? Hey, y'all. What's up? This is uh, Isra Warda. I'm in a, a dancer of Algerian origin. I teach in New York. I teach and perform North African dance styles, particularly popular dances from Algeria and Morocco, and a little bit of indigenous dances as well, amazigh dances, as we call it. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much Thank for, being, for here. being here. And then we have someone you might recognize. Hi, guys. My name is Mark uh, Balahadia. I'm a actually a Filipino-American dancer, but I perform, well, I specialize in dances from Iraq and the Khalij, uh, mostly. And it's mostly what I'm well known for. I also um, belly dance. I do dabka. I have some knowledge of, you know, the most popular North African dances, but I'm not an expert. It's just something that I've been exposed to. And I'm very excited to talk today. And thank you for inviting me. Glad to have you back. Um, So there were a few things we were talking about for starting this episode. Um, One of them was uh, continuing the conversation about uh, cultural appropriation in Middle Eastern and North African dance, both here as it pans out in the U.S. and kind of a white-centric industry, and also like back home, back in the region. Could each of y'all kind of describe uh, what cultural appropriation is to you in the context of your work or how you see it coming up uh, surrounding the type of dance you do? Yeah, sure. So I have done a few lectures before on cultural appropriation for the North African and, you know, what they call the belly dance community in the West here in the U.S., and I've used a definition that's uh, adds a little bit of an adaptation from um, common definitions of cultural appropriation. So um, in the context of dance and culture, I have defined it as an inappropriate co-optation or um, adaptation of a marginalized community's culture or their customs and practices and other identity markers by a more dominant privileged group. And typically that dominant and privileged group is like a white group. Um, and, the, and the thing that for me, what's important to mention in cultural appropriation is that it's typically for profit. And even if that means financially or for some sort of status or societal or social or financial benefit without that benefit to the original group of people that they are co-opting. That's how I would describe cultural appropriation. Yeah, thanks for that. Because I feel like sometimes these conversations, they get kind of like pigeonholed into the realm of just sensitivity and not like money and power, which is, I mean, it's it's behind like everything, right? Material consequences. Ezra uh, pointed out much of what I agree with in terms of what cultural appropriation is. I would also sort of uh, tie it in with colonialism and how those two kind of go hand in hand because I feel that cultural appropriation is a type of modern colonialism. There isn't, there is still colonialism and occupation happening in this world. I mean, of course, like Palestine. However, you also remember that I feel like cultural appropriation is a tool of colonialism in the sense that colonialism is about occupying a country, you know, against their will, you know, kind of superimposing your culture on top of them, whatever. And uh, cultural appropriation is sort of the same thing, but in the opposite direction where they're, they're taking something from a culture, um, like, you know, people in white America, you know, they're dominant in this culture, taking and appropriating things inappropriately from, you know, black culture, from 
different Asian cultures, from Native American culture, which is like probably the worst kind of culture operation that can happen in America. And taking that for benefit, for profit, in a way, like as uh, Ezra said, inappropriate, um, disrespectful. I think part of what the difference between honoring a culture and participating in it and in an appropriate way and doing it in a way that's disrespectful there is a clear difference and there isn't like a gray line. It's like definitely if the intent is different and the mode is different, then it, it's definitely cultural appropriation. It's a, it's a form of modern colonialism. I'd like to add one last point. The reason why it's also a form of neocolonialism is because my main argument against cultural appropriation, aside from the material and cultural effects that, that I mentioned, that it actually directly contributes to an erasure of a community. So when we're talking about physical colonization, like murdering and occupying millions of people, but when we're talking about this cultural colonialism, it's erasing uh, people's presence. It's erasing people's culture. It's erasing people's history. And I always give the example that if you were to go online or on YouTube, the YouTube university that everyone, you know, we all go on every day to learn stuff. If you were to type in Belidan or Raq Sharqi or something, or even Moroccan Shabi, you would find white women dancing. That would be your point of reference, a watered down perception by a white person. And that's like erasing the actual knowledge in real time. Yeah, because like that now that's cultural archives now. Like that's, that's what we're using. And what I say, what I like to call it is I like to say it's institutionalizing ignorance. It's institutionalizing the watered down version of things. So that becomes the new normal. Exactly. And you see that on YouTube so much where, for example, in my field in the Iraqi dance, when you search Iraqi dance, one of the most popular videos you'll see will be some Russians doing a bad version of a very beautiful and very deep dance. There's so little with what they do that actually is part of actual like, you know, Iraqi folkloric dances. It's like so far removed that, you know, it's its its own creature, but that's what's out there. Yeah, and I feel like when things get that diluted over time, then it doesn't take much for someone who is responsible, one of the people responsible for diluting the art form to then call themselves an expert, it's insulting to the practice to um, make the claim that you can go to like a three-day workshop or even better, you can go to the region for three days and like you're suddenly, <laughs> you're suddenly an expert in XYZ and it just like takes away um, the depth that is behind the actual practice and then also it contributes to these like at least in the US and I know worldwide you have this issue of like certain Eurocentric or white centric art forms then getting to be seen as, oh, you must study this, this and this to be taken seriously as a dancer, as a musician, whatever the art form is. So, so the consequences are definitely dire. It's like, you know, you were saying it's not just a sensitivity thing. Also, something you brought up is it's not exclusively in the U.S. Like, I think we could talk about, like, the mostly white belly dance community in the U.S. and how it could be alienating to dancers from that culture, maybe all dancers of color. Mm -hmm. But it's also an issue of idealizing whiteness 
in the region. Um, and Isra, something you were bringing up was the double standards, even like within the region of foreign dancers or white dancers, especially Eastern European dancers, being able to benefit from doing local dances while um, indigenous dancers are being actively oppressed for it. Right. So we're talking about people who can, privileged people who can pick and choose a part of culture that benefits them without facing the repercussions of a person from that culture or background, right? And we have that example with like dreadlocks, right? If a white person, you know, inappropriately wears dreadlocks, they're looked as edgy and cool. And meanwhile, Black folks in America are like getting fired over it. And I also want to be able to talk about uh, North African and Arab and Middle Eastern uh, dances in a in a, in a beautiful affirming light as well. But I also want to be honest that people are getting punished and people are risking their lives for just being, just dancing in public at all, not even being a dancer professionally. And we're talking about like stories of Egyptian um, young girls on TikTok that have been arrested and fined over being indecent on TikTok or even Alexander Palkovich, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing their last name, but who was just recently trialed in a military court for protesting, who's a very well-known and targeted male belly dancer, is facing oppression and repression for being a dancer. And we have tons of examples even across, all you need to do is just go to YouTube comments and see any femme person any queer person, any woman dancing is just automatically an insult. You, you get death threats, and I do too as well. I have people who constantly insult me, uh, call me a disgrace to my country, disgrace to my culture, slut shame me constantly. Because of many, I mean, we can talk all day about all the different factors of why we perceive dance as a marker of morality, right? We see folks who dance as like, they're not an, a moral person. They don't have good morals. We could talk a, a mix of all of that stuff. The cultural influences, religion, tradition, all of these things that we would need a whole different podcast, a whole episode to talk about all those things. And I don't want to like shit on religion or talk about all these things. But the thing is um, with the American, because we all live in the United States, with the United States dance scene, sometimes there is, we forget that these dances are not American. We detach People who get into cult, like uh, an Arab dance, get so detached from the community in which the dance comes from that it almost like stands alone with no context. What's so interesting, I always find so interesting, is this like fantasizing and orientalizing and and like mystical caricaturizing of North African and Arab and Middle Eastern femininity that in order for you to become a, a belly dancer or any kind of Arab dance style, you have to change your name to Amina and you have to wear dark hull eyeliner. You have to like say, Yalla Habibi and be really corny and cliche it's because you're caricaturizing a person that you want to be. And I think it's so interesting that this region, North Africa, the Middle East, and even like parts of, of East Asia, you can even say like, are countries that have been so prone and such victims of cultural imperialism that we get copied and emulated so much. And unfortunately, I think at the same time, because this is, you know, a podcast, we spoke about this, a podcast that is for Arabs, 
and for queer Arabs in particular, that this in the more internal discussion that we should have is that do we um, perpetuate a lot of these things at the same time, right? Do we put white people on a pedestal? Do we put colonizers on a pedestal? You know, why is it that a lot of Egyptian club owners prefer Eastern European dancers to work in their clubs, right? Why is it that an Egyptian woman has a harder time building a career as a belly dancer, both in Egypt and the United States, because here in the United States, they're valuing white bodies more and there in Egypt, they're valuing white bodies more. <laughs> We're perpetuating a lot of, and it's not our fault. We are adding extra layers to the problem of appropriation so much. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's internalized colonialism and we can, we can be part of the problem even if the problem doesn't stem from us. I don't know, something I just thought of in terms of like respectability and dance and like centering whiteness was like, I do like mostly Eurocentric-ish contemporary dance, not always. To the extent that my family gets what I do, that's what they think I do. And I was always taught like, it do but, but, but don't say you're a asa, like, cause no, that's like associated with being like slutty and you're, it means you're a whore and blah, blah, blah. Um, and having to kind of like lean into this idea of respectability which is also so um intertwined with ideas of whiteness like oh no you like studied ballet you're you're a fanene like but it's like no what's wrong with being a dancer what's wrong with saying like i use my body to express myself and if you associate it with sex work like what the fuck is wrong with that either you know right um, that that's kind of been a lens by which i've kind of had to like examine the ways that even like within my own career and within my own family I've had to see like how I've been entrenched in these standards or buying into these standards and learning to divest from them. Isra has really kind of like spoken a lot about what I feel as well. I think I can only add to that with the problems with cultural preparation slash neo-colonialism and you know all the shit is that in, in terms of my field and Iraqi dance and Khaliji dances, I feel that the way that it's approached is so problematic. And as we've spoken before, there's such a disconnect between learning the dance and the rest of the culture, you know? And I think that white dancers maybe view it as cultural baggage when it's more like something that needs to be confronted and approached and appreciated for what it is and that dance cannot be learned in the vacuum and white belly dancers talk about this a lot that dance is not learned in the vacuum but they they learn dance actively in a vacuum versus trying to learn more about a culture and delve deeper in a way that is not always dance exclusive yes dance is culture. However, it's tied to a culture at large. And there's only so much you can learn from a Facebook group about Raksharki, okay? I think that just by their practices and lack of engagement in the Arab community, I guess they're separating themselves from that in a way that makes them feel comfortable. And that's the same with any ethnic dance that's being learned by, by white people in general. And I think that's something that I see a lot because all these dancers in Eastern Europe or in America who are learning Iraqi dance or Khaliji dance are learning it in a way where they have like no context to the culture. All they know is like, okay, this is the music 
and then here are steps and they just apply it on top of them. The worst problem is they don't even learn from people from that culture. They learn from another white belly dancer or they learn it from someone who is Egyptian who is a great dancer normally but the thing is it's like sort of like learning culture through a telephone game or something like by the time you get to you it's become so morphed and so weird that you're not learning anything of value because you're not learning anything that is actually from the source but you're learning it from other people learn it from other people and it dilutes it and you know it also is sort of like are are the people from that region benefiting from that are they making money or are they getting value from teaching their culture or is it you're learning from other people or from even from youtube and that is not helping them you know yeah. i think um we also wanted to talk about what can we do to actively change this dynamic support dancers from our communities um so i guess i wanted to ask each of you like what are you doing in your personal work performance teaching practice that's uplifting people and other artists from the communities you're working in so what in particular is the most offensive about cultural appropriation is that you also don't need to be a white person to culturally appropriate you can just subscribe to white supremacist beliefs and hierarchy right i think what's more the most offensive and what's problematic for my own community is that once you center um, let's say for example we're talking about a white dancer they're totally cool and a- allowed to learn a dance and like a dance and appreciate it there's lots of other dances that i'm learning that i'm not from those cultural communities the issue lies more in agency and who's a leader and who benefits socially culturally financially my kind of idea is to not be a constant rejection to white imperialist cultural imperialism because i don't exist in rejection to that i stand as a as a person of my community that somehow is a representative of my community because i want to lead by example and show that you can be a fat person you can be a person who's grown up with cultural repression from your family like you can't dance not allowed to dance not allowed to do all these things cultural norms that are against you for dancing and you could still dance as a career so for in algeria dancing as a career in traditional algerian dance is like unheard of and for me i want to set that example for other people coming up and for all of my students as well and the funny thing is most of my students are actually younger um north african people right they're young women young queer folks just folks in general who are in the diaspora who want to reconnect with their culture and also get that groove if you take a class with me i mean you've taken a class with me nadia it's it's cool it's chill sometimes i'm eating donuts in class i represent the essence of North Africa that is missing in a lot of whitewashed spaces and for me it's bringing the the decolonial energy of that grandma auntie living room saggy tit energy to the classroom and to my teaching style and to my workshops and to my parties and stuff because when you think about that that is my that those are my idols my aunts are my idols um this is like the ultimate anti-colonial symbolism grandma gathering don't give no shits bellies out you know and a lot of people are inspired by that you know not only women like a lot of folks are inspired by that and my thing is trying to bring that energy and obviously it's a little bit out of context in the United States because we're in the United States um not in the countries of origin but 
ideally, I also want, I, I have been shifting the talk to focus less on white crimes against culture. They don't need a reaction all the time. I'm not here to constantly react to, you know, cultural appropriation. I, I will say things because I need to, but at the end of the day, my goal is to uplift my own community. And that's the North African community as a whole, not only Algerians. And that in order for us, we cannot stop cultural appropriation because that's a, that's a problem that, you know, white people need to fix amongst themselves, but also we can stop supporting it and stop buying into it and stop creating the foundation, you know, creating the, the, the environment in which it can thrive because we keep uh, supporting European and Western dancers. And we would respect uh, a European woman who's caricaturizing me more than me myself, right? And we do that. Nobody else does that. We do that. And, you know, we've grown up doing that and teaching these things as well. Having this conversation with you, talking about intercommunal Arab discussions is important because there's two different discussions that need to be happening at the same time, extra communal and intercommunal. Yeah, I think just one thing I wanted to add about um, taking your workshop, it's so clear that like, yes, it's a class setting. It's like a little bit removed, but it's also so clear that you're teaching social dance in that class. Like you say like, this is what you do when you hear this beat at a party because that's what this dance is made for. And there's, um, I don't know, sometimes people, when they're teaching forms that are originally social dances, they still feel the need to like, and at the end we have to like cinch it up with like a cute combo that you can perform at the end. And like, I don't always hate that as a class, but there's also something that's really great about not feeling to set something into that mold. Like, no, this is made to be a social dance and that's, that's how you're teaching it. I'm so glad you mentioned that because one of the core principles and pedagogies of my classes is teaching the skill of improvisation. Because when you co-opt Arabness or North Africanness or indigeneity or Middle Easternness, the choreography uh, cycle is a great thing to buy into because you can just buy a dance. But can you really connect with that music and connect with that cultural expression? with no guidance. Improvisation is, is such a important element of North African culture that people don't learn that anymore. People just learn choreographies and combos to copy. Yeah, that's, it takes, I don't know, it takes so much more to get that, to, for a person to just like get that in them, to like get it in their system that they can, I don't know, be just like actively playing with the music while they're dancing. Mark, I wanted to hear from your perspective how you're approaching, I guess, constructive responses to cultural appropriation as someone who's doing dances from a culture you're not from, but also is so like invested in being part of these communities and learning about them. And I don't know, sometimes when people say like, oh, are you saying that someone not from this culture can learn dances? And it's like, no, of course not. That's not what we're saying at all. And I think you, you've really been an example of that, of there are ways of respecting and being part of communities without mm -hmm. simply just poaching. So um, one thing that I've been thinking about for a long time, and I think part of it is just from an exhaustion from talking about the problems of cultural appropriation. Like I've been talking about this for years and a lot of it has fallen on deaf ears. And uh, I just sort of kind of disengaged myself slightly from the dance community. Like, I don't know what white belly dancers are doing or who's teaching or 
who's even working in the New York area. I'm, I've been doing my, my own thing for such a long time because I felt like the spaces that were established in the dance community in the U.S., whatever that means for, for Raksharki or for folkloric dance from the Middle East or North Africa is that machine, that workshop scene, what have you. It, it's toxic. So I've sort of stepped back and also thought, how do I support Arab dancers, uh, musicians, artists in general, like how do I support them and lift up their voices? That's something I've been thinking about. I was having a conversation with other, one of your other podcast guests, um, Angie Asal, and I was saying that, you know, I've been dancing for a long time, blah, blah, blah. And like, I've encountered all this crazy crap, you know, and she said that she engaged slightly in the dance community and felt unwelcomed or felt sort of sidelined in a way. And I think that's unfair. You know, most of like the most famous dancers who are working a lot regularly, uh, teaching in the workshop circuit, what have you, are not from the Arab world. You know, besides the ones that come from Egypt to teach here and there, you know, you don't see people in the community here who are, are Arab. And I think part of the problem is that the belly dance community is not welcome to native Arab dancers who have something innately taught to them in their culture that's very deep and that's something that they were raised with that you know no one me nor other foreigner white belly dancers what have you they'll never have that sort of cultural background for me one of the things is to support arab dancers and musicians and artists another thing for me is to try to connect the dots and not learn dance well i've never learned dance in a vacuum that's just not how I've ever approached this. I've always been closely engaged in the Arab community. And that's kind of goes hand in hand with not supporting Arab artists is that also being so disconnected from these things. And parts of the United States are so diverse that there's no excuse for white belly dancers not to learn Arabic. You know, you can learn Arabic pretty much online, anywhere, classes, on, you know, everywhere. It's, it's really not hard to sort of starting to delve deeper, you know, and also thinking about and self-reflecting on what are the practices that I do? Do they support or do they uh, bring down Arab dancers and artists and musicians and what have you? Like, how am I helping the situation? How am I adding value or just making it worse, you know, or kind of perpetuating cultural appropriation, you know, colonialism and better thing from um, Arab culture in a way that doesn't help other Arab artists. That's something that I do in just my sort of approach to Iraqi dance, Khaliji dance, Raksharki, what have you. And also something that I think dancers need to think about more and also sort of practice more because I do see uh, more of this talk about cultural appropriation and how to do these things and blah, blah, blah. But these, even people who are talking about it more are still pretty disconnected to Arab culture. And part of it is American society where everything has sort of become very commercialized. You know, it's sort of like, oh, I'm going to be doing samba, blah, 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 at this class and I'm going to start performing. But like, has this person ever been to, to Brazil? Can they speak Portuguese? Can they do this? You know, blah, blah, blah. Like, is they, have they delved deeper beyond just taking a class and then performing? And the answer usually is no. That's the steps that I take and that's the steps that things that that's how just bitching about it is one thing, you know, but how does that, uh, like with what Esra was saying, like, how can she make this part of the solution moving forward and also how she can add value to her own community? How can I add value to the outer community 
while still doing my own thing and dancing and you know presenting these dances, but also supporting Arab dancers here and in the diaspora, in the rest of the diaspora and also in the Middle East. How can I, in my actions, do that? So I don't think that's thought of at all in the white belly dance community or even overseas or anywhere, you know, they, they're not thinking in that sort of way. And I think that should be more of the conversation. I kind of wanted to ask you guys about uh, finding like the right space and context for your work here, given that uh, each of you have pretty specific cultural focuses. And we're talking about this as like the belly dance community, because that's kind of what it gets homogenized into, like all of Middle Eastern and North African dance Generally, all that's recognized mainstream is Sharki or belly dance. And I mean, Mark, that's sometimes what you do, but sometimes it's not. And yeah, I'm curious, like, how have you guys found, respectively, found your work being categorized in um, different teaching or performance scenes you've been into? And where have you kind of carved out the right space for you to do what you do. Generally speaking, North African dance, I'll tell you particularly, there are a few dances that I specialize in, but for the moment, what I've chosen to hone my energy to are two popular dances. And one of them is Shabi Mribi, which is Moroccan Shabi. And one of them is Rai, music from Algeria. And these are two popular styles that I'm giving most of my energy to for the moment. What I have to say is to, how we say, like I'll bring it to you straight up from the end, that what ends up happening is uh, or what is known as belly dance in the Western classification ends up becoming the center of Arab or North African visual identity. And then everything else becomes a periphery around it. So that's the over general imagery that we have of sequin bras and long slit maxi skirts with sequins and stuff like that and everything else becomes second fiddle to it so often times people see dances from the maghreb countries west of egypt they often see them as folkloric fun accessories to raqsharqi or belly dance as if we don't have our own studies and our own histories and our own foundations of dance completely separately. So it's almost as if it's tribalizing everything else that's not from the centers of Arab culture, which is like Egypt and Lebanon and all these places. Um, because people from Maghreb have often been seen as less Arab, which is true because ethnically we're not really Arab to the core. We're a mix of indigenous and, and Arab and, and all these influences and what ends up happening is my dance gets interpreted as um, an accessory to belly dance as opposed to its own study. So a lot of people who come to learn often will dance or a lot of the performances I see in Moroccan Shabi, for example, which is starting to become more popular, is people who will use Moroccan Shabi movements, but in the framework and structure of belly dance. And just an example of that is... In Shabi Maghribi, you often do a lot of, you, you'll do the same move for a long time. It's very common to do the same thing for a minute, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes straight. In belly dance, because it's become so performative, you kind of need to do like magic tricks so quickly. You need to do this and pop, pop this and that and pop at this, bounce a chair on your head and do all this stuff and, and jump upside down and then backflips 
So what ends up happening is that people who are learning Moroccan Chabi, you know, as they say, when you're in Rome, do as the Romans do. You need to absorb and take a culture for what it is. So a lot of times people will go against the, the grain in learning Moroccan Chabi and they will try to over choreograph it or try to stick a lot of impressive magic tricks in a short period of time because that's what we learned. We learned that to do an Arab dance, you need to be a spectacle, like a clown almost. You need to impress people really quickly or you're going to lose their attention, um, which actually real Rakhsharqa is not even like that. It's not. It's also the same thing where you can do the long something for a long time and keep repeating it without doing all the magic tricks. Dances from the Khalij and Iraq are often thought as a folkloric flourish or just an addition when it really is its own dances and there's so much diversity within those those regions and socially and more social dances are done at parties and folklore staged folklore by Arabs in Middle Eastern countries of Iraqi and Khaliji dances and that it's often considered by belly dancers something as like an add-on like let's say they do a show and then they add a folkloric step and they add a folkloric dance from like Iraq or Khalij or something. Because of that approach, like Isra has said, it's not respected as much because it's thought of as an add-on or a folkloric flourish as part of something that they do. It's like something, it's like adding something to your resume. Do you really know that much about that at all? Like if it's just something in addition, should you be dancing Khaliji or Iraqi dances in that context where you're not delving deep you're just sort of doing it just to say that you can it's come to a point in what i've done is where that i've kn- i'm known specifically for doing iraqi rada and for like khaliji dances and it was a very natural progression because i started out learning raksharke like in a a workshop or classroom like most dancers although my original my original exposure to it was like from from other friends the reason why i took classes was because I was exposed to it by people from the culture. So that's, I think, different than other people's exposure to it who are white Americans. Because of that and because of the way that it's approached and how it's just thought of as an add-on, it's already not being done very well. People don't delve deeper into it, especially Eastern European dancers, Russian dancers, dancers in America and Europe, white people, basically. When they perform this dance, these dances, like example, Iraqi Rada, is that they perform it in such a way where it's like, okay, well, how do I add as many exciting moves into a set as possible? If you see the real thing, Melayin is a a really well-known Iraqi dancer. There's also uh, Rasha El-Agrab, her, her name is literally Rasha the Scorpion. I love her name. Like you see these dancers and they'll, they post their YouTube clips or stuff or someone shares it or whatever. And they're incredibly repetitive. They just do the same couple of movements over and over and over and over again. But that's kind of the beauty of it because you get to look at the movement and appreciate for what it is. You know, the approach of that is just so different and foreign to... Western dancers from white dancers because they're used to, it's just a different way of moving. And so it's definitely a problem in the approach. I try to emulate the way that Arab dance is done. And I think part of it is because I'm not white American. 
my own folkloric dances from the Philippines are so repetitive. When I've approached this, it's always been sort of like, what are the best practices? You know, is this too much like, you know, blah, blah, blah. I just, I, I think maybe I'm coming from a different approach, but that's definitely a problem that I see with uh, the way things are done and that Iraqi and Khalidi dance is not respected by white belly dancers because it's thought of as an add-on. Thanks you guys so much for this conversation. Do you guys have anything coming up and where can people find you? Thank you Nadia and Alia for your invitation. I'm really happy to be here and I'm, I hope everyone can uh, learn a lot from our perspectives. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Warda Dance or you can like my Facebook Isra Warda. Uh, Isra is spelled with an E. So E-S-R-A-A. I also do teach classes online. For the moment, I am teaching Shabi Mughribi and Rai online. Uh, I teach Fridays and Saturdays. You can also find that information on my Instagram uh, on how to sign up. One big important element of my business practice and the way I run my artist practice is that everything's internal. So essentially, we have a little cultural ecosystem that our clothes we buy from local Moroccan artists, the belts we buy of Moroccan local artists, the studios we rent from are people of color. It's essentially making sure that our money stays in our communities. So that's a really great way to support um, and uplift uh, Arab artists is to spend your money in the right place because money is, spending power is incredibly um, important. And lastly, to actually work and call out all of the kind of neo-colonialist impositions and that we have within our own cultures to make sure that we're standing up against you know patriarchy or sexism or homophobia or things like that don't allow people to dance and express themselves freely or even safely project wise i am not teaching i haven't taught in years actually and that was kind of a personal decision i got burned a lot from belly dancers for being too honest about the problems I saw in the community and therefore I actually part of it is that I took myself out of the community somewhat or to most extent I would say 90% of the time I, I don't even like engage with them and the other thing is I think that because I was so honest I sort of turned people off like just saying this sucks this is awful or this is not appropriate this is you know this is not the way of doing things and maybe I did, in a way, got myself disengaged by the community, by other white belly dancers. And what can I do? However, um, since then, I've basically danced for, for Arabs. I don't dance for pretty much anybody else. I seldom have done any belly dance performances for the belly dance community. I think I've danced Iraqi for them at the most in the past five years, three or four times at the most. I'm, I'm barely engaged at all. In the future, I'd like to engage more in a way where I can talk about these issues and try to get the conversation started in the sense that, like, how do we support Arabs? And this is something that I've been wanting to do more of. And I have an opportunity. I'm going to be writing articles for this belly dance magazine. And I just really want to like approach these topics in a way that is digestible. I don't want people to like stop listening to me and be like, oh, he is, you know, reactionary. He's so like blah, blah, blah. But I, it's, these are all topics that we spoke today that need to be addressed. And I think I have an opportunity now to talk about a little more. Currently, I'm just posting on YouTube. You can find me on Mark um, the American if you type in, in Arabic or you can go on um, Instagram 
um, and my Instagram handle is uh, Balahadia Mark. I don't post that much at the moment because I don't know, it's a coronavirus, I'm not feeling it, but I'm trying to do more. And that's what I'm doing right now. Thank you both so much for your time. This is, this is a very important conversation. Thank you, Mark, for connecting all of us. Mm-hmm.